The wheel of indictment landed on China this week. We break down what it means. We talked to Todd Weller from Bandaroo Systems in our feature interview where he tells us what it's like to move from Wall Street to cybersecurity. Plus, we break down who is the dumbest cyber criminal of the week, and quite frankly, it's a tough choice. Securiosity starts now. Let's go. Welcome, everyone, to Securiosity. I am your co-host, Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, and guess what? No election security news this week. Don't count your lucky stars just yet. Jen wouldn't be surprised if next week's show is all about what did or did not go wrong. I kind of can't wait to hear what went wrong. Uh, well, we were talking to Chris Krebs. Chris Krebs said at DC Cyber Talks that something always does go wrong. Let's hope it's not a huge deal. But that's for next week. So this week, yes, we are keeping away from election security, but there was still a ton of stuff to talk about. So let's get right to it. The naming and shaming continues. The Department of Justice unsealed charges against 10 Chinese nationals on Tuesday as part of the department's persistent effort to prosecute foreign hackers. Two Chinese intelligence officers and their recruits were among those indicted for breaking into corporate networks of U.S. and French aerospace companies to steal trade secrets. Assistant Attorney General John Demers hinted that there could be more to come in the legal crackdown on foreign hacking by saying, this is just the beginning. What do you think Demers meant by that? So what Demers meant by that was that the DOJ was going to roll out a high-level initiative dedicated to countering what they call is the pervasive threat to U.S. national security. And let's strip away the sort of legalese there that that is. They basically want to go after China and China's uh, uptick in hacking. Um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had a big reveal on Thursday with uh, John Demers talking about how Chinese economic espionage is increasing rapidly. And we all know how this administration feels about China. Hello, trade war. So this is, you know, this is another spoke on the wheel when it comes to that trade war. But I mean, China's been hacking American companies and international companies going back into the Obama and uh, the Bush administration. This is what China does to get IP. There was another indictment on Thursday where a federal grand jury released an indictment against a Chinese state-owned enterprise for going against a company, uh, Micron Technology, which is a company that makes semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And we all know how much semiconductors in China, at least allegedly, we know that there's uh, things, you know, shady things going on there about that. But look, this is just, again, Trump wants to go after China and sort of the way that they conduct their economy and conduct um, their hacking. And this was an initiative that I'm surprised didn't happen sooner. Did we have any final conclusions on Supermicro? So, no, that is still going. Um, I believe that there was actually a letter issued by two senators. The letter, which I believe Senator McCaskill was on the letter, uh, issued a letter to DHS saying uh, we need to look into this a little bit more. And like we've been reporting for weeks, DHS, mm-hmm. NSA, ODNI, they're all looking into the story and still nothing has come up yet. However, we can say for certain because we've been saying it for years that China is just completely going after any sort of American IP when it comes to technology. So even without the super micro story, this was uh, an initiative that was going to happen sooner or later. So from China to North Korea, the FBI has told U.S. companies that North Korean hackers aren't going to stop attacks just because the U.S. government is calling out their malicious behavior. In an advisory to industry, 
that we obtained earlier last week. Uh, the Bureau said North Korea will continue to hack at will no matter what indictments are issued. The FBI is basically acknowledging that despite efforts to deter nation-state hacking, Kim Jong-un's regime is too brazen to care. Uh, Jen, this is, like, just wild, right? Why was right? this even, like, a thing, right? Like, isn't that just kind of obvious? Doesn't the average person kind of know that North Korea is not going to stop? Well, maybe, but still at the same time, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast and on the pages of CyberScoop talking about how the DOJ is so adamant on naming and shaming and raising the bar to stop hackers and, and raising the cost to burn operations and make them start from scratch and build things up even higher when it comes to their operations. Now, in this FBI alert, they're undercutting themselves, and I find that to be wild. They're basically saying on, you know, publicly they're going, this, you know, this is very important, this really matters, we've raised the cost for them. And then they're putting out memos that say, eh, you know what, uh, you need to be careful when it comes to North Korea, because North Korea doesn't care, and they're gonna keep hacking no matter what indictments we press forward. I mean, like, I think the, the undercutting to, here is just staggering to me. Yeah. I mean, I think they have to make those indictments, right? They have to um, show people that we care and that we're doing something about it. But at the same time, I mean, they're not going to stop. Yeah. But it just goes back to, I think, about the WannaCry uh, complaint that was coming out. And a lot of uh, legal and law enforcement experts talked to me and they were like, I don't understand why we're doing this. And this was before this advisory went out. This adds another layer of confusion to me as to why they chose to handle themselves the way that they did. Look, for the China thing that we just talked about, that they've been doing that forever. They've been rolling out the indictments mm -hmm, in order mm -hmm. to say, okay, China, we're, you know, we're after you. And then there's been these talks going back to the obama G talks where everything sort of shut down and there was a norm drawn. Like there so if you follow the line of logic there it's okay we're going to we're going to indict them and we're going to try to raise the deterrence level in order to try to get them to the table so we can right. have talks about norms and set uh, a line of behaviors. Well, with North Korea they're not going to listen to these these behaviors. So why are we why are we going through the song and dance of indicting all of these people only to turn around and then say, yeah, it doesn't matter what we do anyway, they're going to come after you, so you better have your security apparatus tight. It like I I just I, I can't follow the logic there. My brain ties in a knot into what we're doing with regards to North Korea. Yeah, let me guess to see. So the security community isn't usually one to fawn over Apple's product rollout, but the computer giant gave it reason to issue some praise on Tuesday. Apple released more details about its T2 security chip, which handles a number of security processes. In a security pamphlet released after Apple's press event on Tuesday, the company revealed that the chip will completely cut off access to the device's microphone when the MacBook lid is shut. While Macs are generally considered to be among the most secure devices in the market, there have been instances of malware that allow people to take over Mac web scams. Greg, how viable is that sort of attack? So it, it is viable. I mean, you just talked about the attacks that take over Mac users' webcams. Yeah. It reminds me of the Fruitfly story where a young dude found a way to turn on webcams and just record people at will, which he's currently in jail for, I believe. Um, but uh, we, we also saw there was also some stuff that came out in the Snowden releases where the NSA had figured out ways to manipulate webcams and yeah. microphones and 
It's possible. I don't know how plausible it is, but it's possible. So good on Apple for saying, okay, we're just going to turn off mics overall because the more OPSEC inclined people, even when it comes to iPhones, if, if you're having a sensitive conversation, sometimes you are told to put a microphone in an iPhone in a microwave in order to just muffle the microphone because it is possible to manipulate the microphone even when your phone is sleeping. So um, again, it's plausible. So Apple went forward and decided, okay, you know what? We're going to add this to the T2 security chip, which does secure enclave and guard your fingerprints if you're using Touch ID. Um, and we're going to cut the mic off completely if you've shut your computer. Interesting. So just another yeah. layer of security, which speaks to the secure by design stuff that, that we hear from experts so much that, okay, you're probably not going to have to worry about this, but for those of you that do worry about this, we're going to take care of it, and now you don't have to worry about it. If you buy a new MacBook, you're going to have this installed, uh, or it's going to be part of your hardware, and you're never going to have to think about it. Yeah, there's a local company here that builds a box um, to put in conference rooms, so when you walk in, you put your phone, your iPads, whatever, in it. Um, oh, okay. Well, I'm sure secure. I'm yeah. sure they are not happy about this little development <laughs> here. That it's like, well, why do I need this box when but, when I mean, the computer still shuts off altogether? Yeah, I mean, you still need it for your phone. No, still, absolutely. Yeah. But no, it, it goes to show that slowly but surely, the big device manufacturers are realizing that they need to have security built into their products on the hardware and software level. Absolutely. And the reason they do is because of things like ransomware. For one, the group behind the SamSam ransomware attack has struck multiple conspicuous targets in 2018, from Atlanta's municipal agencies to Indiana hospitals. And now we have the data to put those attacks into context. The group has attacked 67 organizations this year, with the great majority of them being in the U.S. and nearly a quarter of them in the healthcare sector. This is according to Symantec that released some research Tuesday. Samsung continues to pose a grave threat to organizations in the U.S., according to the company. And organizations, of course, are advised to back up their data to prep for ransomware attacks. And the new research shows that Samsung Group is bringing their own backups in case they want to go further into networks. Jen, I'm wondering if you're starting to see more inside the startup community of companies that are focusing just on healthcare, cybersecurity. I know we've talked to Ostendio before, but are you starting to see any clones of Ostendio and whether they are focusing on specifically threats like this to the healthcare industry? I would say probably once a week, somebody is pitching me on protecting our healthcare system and protecting specifically um, devices So it's more device. It's It's more more device device, more than the network. And what exactly are we talking like iPads that doctors are using? Are we talking more along the lines of like the actual medical equipment? I mean, we're talking about the medical equipment, right? I think um, it's just we see it more and more um, people coming in to pitch that. Um, Important problem to solve, but I think they're probably a little bit too late. At this point. Well, and I, I think if you are a smaller medium practice out there, it might be worthwhile to pay attention to some of these companies yes. because yeah. I, the, the, if these groups are going to keep evolving and make their stuff stronger, they're only going to be more right. of a headache the more you don't protect your office. I mean, I'm almost surprised what we're not seeing more of is companies that are providing an easy way to sort of back up everything. You kind of think that you would have seen more of that, but I guess there's so many companies already that sort of do that and it's easy. The problem is people just don't. Right. So good news of the week. Signal Messenger is beta testing a feature that allows users to encrypt not just the contents of their messages, but the senator's identity as well. 
Signal, developed by Open Whisper Systems, is known for its end-to-end -end encryption by design. The app by default uses TLS to validate the sender's identity and inform the recipient who that is. But that can theoretically be intercepted. With a new feature, the app can also encrypt the sender's certificate. The recipient's client then decrypts the envelope containing the sender's information with their own identity key. Signal says that this part of an effort to collect, store, and transmit as little information as possible about Signal users. Greg, how do you see this working? Um, I see this working well. First of all, I think this is a great thing that Signal did because we've seen stories this year of sources, particularly inside the government, that have given information out at the classified level and have since been prosecuted for leaking. And in some of those cases, particularly one dealing with the Treasury Department uh, and their uh, FinCEN unit, um, the leaker used signal, but at the same time, their phone was discovered. The, the actual hardware was looked at and all of that information was found. I, again, signal is great in, in, in encrypting messages and making sure that anybody sitting on your phone remotely mm -hmm. doesn't get that information. That doesn't do any good if somebody actually has your device. It doesn't right. matter what level of encryption signal rolls out. If somebody has the device that you're sending information to, it, it, it doesn't matter at all. So one of the big things is with signal is that I've noticed, and I use signal just in my own regular life, not just to talk to sources, is that there is identifying information that comes mm -hmm. through on text. And I'm always a bit hesitant from an OPSEC perspective to reach out from Signal because of things like the, the leakers. Like, I know to make sure to delete messages or get rid of everything. Not everybody follows the same OPSEC that I do as a cybersecurity journalist. So if I'm talking to a source, I'm, I'm sort of just hoping that they followed m my advice. I, there's no guarantees. This is another secure by design thing where now it's there is an added level of security where, okay, that person might know who I'm talking to, but God forbid they have their phone confiscated as part of a law enforcement investigation and or, or a uh, leak investigation, and they open that up and suddenly I'm compromised and they're compromised because they leaked to a journalist. So what does that mean for you? If somebody's phone gets taken and they see that that person's been talking to you as a journalist? Well, for me, it doesn't because I'm, you know, I have First Amendment protections and there's everything there with yeah. the journalist. Um, so uh, I don't run the risk. However, as a good journalist that wants people to reach out to him, I don't want somebody that is, and I, I'm speaking as like collectively as sure. a journalist. Journalists don't Want, I mean, we're still human. We know that people are taking huge risks by uh, divulging information to us. So we don't want them to lose their jobs or sure. or get in trouble or run afoul of any of this. Like, we want to be able to communicate securely. So any sort of metadata that gets expunged is, uh, is gone. And, and that's a good thing because otherwise I think that Signal, the ease of use of Signal is pretty easy. And I always suggest it to people that want to reach out that way. However, that, that's not the only way that somebody could sure. reach out. There are other there, – there's Wicker and Wire and WhatsApp has encryption and even Facebook. Facebook is a little bit different on their messenger where you have to turn it on. But at the same time, the, the ease of use and the security by design is always going to be something that 
uh, I, I champion because if you don't have to worry about it, then your your risk goes down. Can't say I ever thought I'd hear you say Facebook and secure. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, they look, they they have their problems (laughs) otherwise. And I wouldn't suggest if if you're talking about using Facebook Messenger versus Signal to even with before (laughs) this news coming out, I'm going to say Signal 10 times out of 10 over using Facebook Messenger to to have a secure conversation. (laughs) So in other good news, Google rolled out four security features for account holders Wednesday, continuing its efforts to give users more autonomy when it comes to protecting their information. Among the changes announced is an automatic risk assessment that will be conducted when a user visits a Google sign-on page. The assessment forces a user to turn on JavaScript, otherwise the sign-on form can't be accessed. Normally, most people have JavaScript turned on, but among the processes that don't are bots. The tweak will now block access from sign-on forms if it doesn't detect JavaScript. Also, some of the features that were rolled out were a guide that can help you if your account is hacked, and more information if you are an Android user, if you have third-party malicious apps on your device. Jen, do you use the Google Security Checkup at all if you are? I, I should start by saying, do you even have Google accounts where you could use Security Checkup at all? I'm just waiting for them to stop reading my email and putting ads targeted towards me. That's not going to stop. <laughs> Google's got to make money. Google's going to continue to make money. But no, I actually don't use Security Checkup. I actually would suggest it. I think it's one of the better guides out there. Um, they remind you uh, quarterly, I guess I get a blip every time that I sign on to uh, a Google account where it's like, hey, you haven't checked this stuff. And it's and it's just basic stuff saying, uh, do you want to think about changing your password? Do you still have a backup account that you want to talk to us about? Is there other contact information you want to give us so we can reach out in case your uh, accounts are hacked? Are you cool with all of these third-party Chrome extensions that you have? Just sort of a, a, a again, a, a checkup is a good way to describe it. Just sort of a check-in to say, are, are you aware of everything that you're doing and do you want to keep doing it? Right. Which is, I, yeah. I think, a, a very simple way to go about it. And I guess I probably don't know what Chrome extensions I have. You should probably check that out. <laughs> So let's come on to the dumb criminal section of the week. So a series of DDoS attacks on Rutgers University has earned a New Jersey man an $8.6 million fine, half a year after house arrest. In 2,500 hours community service, Paras Jha admitted to carrying out the Rutgers attack between 2014 and 2016. Jha is one of the masterminds behind the infamous Mirai botnet attack of 2016, which brought several major internet services to a halt via botnet leveraging an army of vulnerable internet and connected devices. And Joshua Schultz, suspected of transmitting stolen CIA hacking data to WikiLeaks, may have more charges coming his way. In May, prosecutors say Schultz passed classified information related to his case to his family members for purposes of dissemination to other third parties, including the media. Additionally, the government found that Schultz had found a way to smuggle multiple cell phones into a jail cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. Prosecutors say Schultz had multiple devices and accessed approximately 13 email and social media accounts, some of which were encrypted. Craig, which one's dumber? It, uh, you know, I said at the top of the show that it's tough, and I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, I kind of lied. This one's easy for me. Schultz is one of the, this, this story continues to be one of the dumbest stories that I've covered in the past I don't know, year, two years. Let's back up and talk about 
when this story initially broke that Schultz was the person responsible for the Vault 7 leaks, there were tons of reports, some on our site, some on other sites, about how bad his operational security was. I mean, this guy was putting stuff that he built for the CIA on GitHub and yeah. was using the same account names as his, like, Reddit accounts and his blog and just wild, wild, wildly dumb stuff. This comes out that he is so brazen that the government tells him, this is classified material. This is used for discovery. Please don't do this. And he just does it. So, oh, okay, that's pretty dumb. To me, the dumbest part is trying to smuggle smartphones and smart devices into a jail cell inside a Manhattan penitentiary. Look, it, it would be one thing if he's out in, in, in middle America in some prison or something like that where you might be able to fly a drone that drops a phone and you might be able to get away with this. This is Manhattan. This is the biggest city in the world. And when it comes to law enforcement, there's a huge law enforcement presence there. Like, what are you doing? But he managed to get some. What are some. you doing? But, but they found it so quickly. Like, they okay. found it quickly. And I believe if you read the uh, motion that we have on cyberscoop.com with this story, it doesn't say it outright, but it looks like they sat on it for a little bit only because, or when I say they, law enforcement sat on it for a little bit because they wanted to, like, tap the phone in order to see what he was doing and see who he was communicating with. If you, this is not just some dude that got caught for, like, drug trafficking or something like that. Like, this is somebody who knows how technology works. How could you not have the foresight to know that, th that they're probably going to sit on that and they're probably going to try to watch what you're doing on that phone? When he had already been arrested for... When he was initially charged, they released him on bail, and part of the, his bail conditions were don't use the internet. And he went and used the internet, and then they arrested him and threw him in jail as, as part of I mean, of I think case. I've let him like, have Like, they the already film. know that they're – they already know – or he already knows that they're watching. So, so you continue to, to try to, like, defy them? Like – Okay, but what else is going to happen to him? He's already in jail. I mean, he's already sort of looked at as an idiot. He's already, I mean, essentially committed treason. What, I guess I'm just a, a person with moral clarity on this, that if I was <laughs> that, if I was up the river that far, that, like, I'd go, okay, that's enough. Like, I, I don't need, like, he's also being charged with child pornography. Like, let's, like, they found child pornography on top of that as well. So you're already, like looking at just years and years and years of of, of charges to deal with. Like, wh why make it? I, I guess he must think, well, okay, it's not going to get any worse for well, me, in so my I mind, might as well yeah. try to do in this. In my mind, that should be a life sentence um, for both oh, things, Oh, he's, he's right? never going to see the, the so, uh, outside so of the I guess. Cell. I mean, why not um, just continue to do bad stuff? I yeah, I, I you know, I, I guess I'm I'm just if you're not getting uh, maybe, out, maybe maybe I'm naive. I yeah. don't know. You can tell me, listeners, if I'm being naive. I just think this is the <laughs> dumbest, the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest thing that uh, I've covered this week. And now for a funding-ish type thing. It's not exactly a funding announcement that was the funding announcement was made. This week, but this funding has been around for a while. A company came out of stealth. 
Uh, Inky, an email spoofing and phishing protection startup, emerged from Stealth and announced their Inky Fish Fence product. Great name there to say, by the way. <laughs> the offering helps organizations detect spoofing attempts whereby attackers hijack a domain to pose as a credible entity. It also warns employees of fishy emails and detects spear phishing and extortion attempts. The Rockville, Maryland company has raised about $5.8 million in venture capital, and the company says its product directly integrates with major enterprise email clients, and it's smart enough to recognize the increasingly innovative ways attackers are getting past spam filters. Jen, talk to me about Inky. I love their logo and their name. The, and the little they, octopus. The octopus yeah, and they is talk cool. about um, deep sea fishing attacks. Um, they've really sort of given names um, to different sort of fishing attacks that I haven't seen before. Um, it's a really important product. It's amazing how many things get clicked on that shouldn't get clicked on. And I think this goes a long way to help. Um, and it integrates into G Suite, it integrates into Office 365, which I'm not sure a lot of people have sort of gotten onto the Office 365 bandwagon, but certainly people are switching to G Suite. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting and important and can I say I sort of recommend this product to everybody without yeah. having used it before just because I think this takes away a huge percentage of the attacks. Right. And hey, uh, also a shout out to Ron. We had Ron Gula on the show yeah. last week and I know that Ron and Gula Tech Adventures was one of the companies that uh, was part of that $5.8 million in venture capital funding. So uh, if Ron's behind it, I would imagine that it's a pretty good product. Absolutely. So now to our interview with Todd Waller. Todd talks to us about a bunch of different things, including the trends around next-gen firewalls, how hackers are also learning to leverage AI and machine learning, and the changing cyber conversation in the C-suite. Check it out. Okay, today... Joining us is Todd Weller, the Chief Strategy Officer for Bandura Cyber. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. So, to start off, talk to us a little bit about what Bandura Cyber actually does. Sure. Uh, Bandura Cyber, we play at a space called Threat Intelligence Gateways. I like to describe it as sitting at the intersection of network security and threat intelligence. And what we do is we filter network traffic at layer two and three based on massive volumes of threat intelligence indicators, IPs and domains. So complement the firewall and the play is there's just a, a lot of known threats, a huge volume of, of that and unwanted traffic and threat intelligence has matured to the point where you can use it to, to block the noise and let the firewall focus expensive deep packet inspection on uh, a lesser amount of cleaner traffic and do its do its job better. So you came out of Wall Street um, as an analyst. What sort of drew you out of that into a startup? Yeah, so it was interesting. So I spent 17 years kind of opining on companies and I think you become a pretty good pattern matcher, but I never really worked inside to see how the sausage is made, so to speak. And um, I can tell you that it's, it is very easy to sit on the outside and say, you know, great quarter, Palo Alto, you're great. Uh, bad quarter, I don't want to pick on any vendors, but Symantec, hypothetically <laughs> 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 speaking, you know, but, um, but uh, you know, really just wanted to do something different and wanted to get inside and really see how a business was built and operated. And it, it's, complicated, right? There's a lot of moving pieces inside a company that goes into putting up good quarters, um, you know, and, and um, so that just new challenge. And I've had a, I've had a great time on the other side. 
So you mentioned earlier you raised a Series A recently, and can you sort of talk about that process? Yeah, so so Bandura's been around for five years. The uh, company started in St. Louis, um, and over its life, up until this round, had raised about three and a half million, mostly bootstrapped. Uh, and you know, I would argue, you know, undercapitalized in a lot of ways because it never really had like a full-fledged sales and marketing effort. Um, their uh, new management team was brought in at the beginning of this year. The goal is to take Bandura to the next level and to get this funding to accelerate growth. So we closed a four million dollar Series A. Uh, actually, it's it's not completely closed. There's another million there uh, that we you know will likely execute on. And uh, GrowTech uh, out of Northern Virginia led that round, and Ron Gula and Gula Tech Adventures also participated, as well as uh, uh, State of Maryland and Cultivation Capital out of St. Louis. So we're taking that capital, and really, it's uh, majority of it is to accelerate sales and marketing. Are you still based in St. Louis, or have you moved operations here? So we're officially headquartered now in Columbia, Maryland, but we have still have a major presence in St. Louis. So our CTO our engineering staff. So, you know, about half the company is based there. And then frankly, you know, senior management is, is here and then uh, pretty pretty virtual as far as where sales folks are. So back to the product and what Bandura is selling to customers, yep. I'd love to hear from your perspective, but what are the weak points of security that most organizations are having because you seem to fit in with a line of different products? So I'm wondering, you know, whether it's in finance or healthcare customers that you're dealing with, you know, if they don't have some sort of security awareness in place, what is something that most of them don't take seriously enough when you go in and you start to set up your product? Yeah, for sure. So I, so I think one is that there's uh, not as good of an understanding of the limitations that uh, next generation firewalls have as okay. far as their ability to use and process external threat intelligence. So they're very good at consuming their own type of indicators, but it, you know, whether it's a Palo Alto or a Checkpoint or the other end of the market, a WatchGuard, they don't allow you to put in a, a high volume of threat intelligence and they don't make it easy. And so what that challenges an organization to do is you got to do one of two things. One, use a limited subset of threat intelligence and you got to curate the list and figure out what you want to do. There you're exposed to kind of security coverage gaps. The other alternative is to just throw a lot of expensive deep packet inspection horsepower to catch kind of known threats. So so I think the you know the limitations of those controls uh, and I do think related to threat intelligence, you know, we need to see more threat intelligence sharing. Uh, among companies, and we're starting to see it more as far as um, we sell a lot to uh, mid-sized banks, and increasingly they're using uh, threat information from FSISAC. Um, a lot of counties we see are involved with MSISAC, which is the threat sharing organization for state, local, terrestrial. So we're starting to see see more of it, but, um, but I, I think that's key challenge. Security awareness, you mentioned. You know, I think it's it continues to increase, right? You're seeing more companies do security awareness training with employees. And the more you read about this stuff, whether it's what just happened with, or allegedly happened with Apple, Amazon, and, you know, uh, Supermicro, or the political stuff, it, it does raise awareness. And I think average people tend to behave a bit differently. So let's go back to that. Uh, let's go back to the threat sharing that you were talking about. How do you see the government being a part of this new threat sharing model because DHS has always been really big in saying share this information not only between yourselves but with us as well so we can sort of help get it out there as well and I know they helped oversee ISACs 
but they also have their own apparatus set up. So I'm wondering whether you're hearing from customers as to whether they are talking with DHS or whether they have any impact on what your customers are doing when it comes to direct yeah. sharing. So I think sharing is like an evolution, right? A few years ago it was, there was a lot of uh, taking and not much giving. And um, I think that balance is starting to change, but there's still, I think, is reluctance to completely share. And why is that? I think it's, I think it's a trust factor you know, between government and private. And, and even, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I was down at a DHS Advanced Threat Technical Exchange a few weeks back in uh, Houston, Texas. There was a, the energy ISAC was talking. Okay. And, you know, they, in fact, are owned by, you know, are controlled by government, right? It's um, FERC, I, I believe. Okay. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and there's a lot of regulations that FERC does for, for the utility. So because it's owned by your regulator who has the ability to, you know, penalize you for violations of, you know, whatever rules, there's there's a kind of a reluctance to, to share that information. So that's why you've seen, you know, in some cases the ISACs are more nonprofit, non government owned. So I think FS ISAC is the most advanced, right? They're doing a lot and there's seven thousand members. But I suspect even if you drill in, I'm sure the the bigger banks are, are probably not sharing everything. But, you know, attackers are sharing. They're sharing tools, right? So, I mean, you can't do it alone. So I think you're, it's like anything else. It's evolution, revolution, but people need to do more threaded sharing. And I think I do think standards have helped a bit, you know, being able to exchange uh, machine-readable indicators via standards like Sticks and Taxi are, are helping. So going back to the security awareness part, um, talk to me about the conversation that you're seeing happen within C-suite, because we could talk about the Threat Intelligence Gateway and how that fits onto the different layers, and that's a lot of IT and yeah. technical talk. How do you see that being translated into the C-suite so they're really getting their mind wrapped around what needs to happen when it comes to the security of their organization? Yeah, well, I think the, the trend there is that security is no longer an IT risk. It's now a business risk, right? And in a lot of cases, and again, nothing in flex overnight, but you're seeing, you know, CISOs uh, increasingly being moved out of IT, you know, sometimes reporting to COO, sometimes reporting to CFO, because it it's a business risk, right? Like, like I think, I always find it interesting that distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks, right? We talk about them as cybersecurity, but it's really a business availability problem. Right. And, and so so I think that's the big the big change going on. It's looking at it more holistically. And I do think, you know, there's this also natural tension or tug of war between how many security technologies and tools you use and want to use. Right. So it's always like I want to consolidate but security moves so fast that, you know, I want to, you know, I want to use fewer tools from fewer vendors. But going back to what we talked about earlier. I think you're going to see the C-suite start to drive more of a focus around this integration aspect. And maybe over time, there'll be a language or standards for security that'll just allow products to work together better. So what other sorts of problems are you seeing out there in cybersecurity that aren't being solved? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think the people... The people problem is still a big one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're seeing some movement on on that front. Sometimes it's just the basics, though, still, right? You still read a lot about cyber hygiene and, 
you know, the, the exploits that are happening is, is something that should have been patched by a company. So I, I am still amazed by how often we're falling down still with things like patching systems or, or access controls. Like I did a, um, I did a recent interview and it was one of the topics was around the, the SWIFT, you know, attacks that okay. happened. And a lot of that was, again, basic hygiene. Yeah, making sure the access controls on the Swift terminal, uh, making sure you had a firewall there. So I think it's it's a combination of the basics, and then it's you know you have to keep up with you know new tools and technologies. Uh, one of the interesting themes, and this will be like a, one of those eyebrow like oh not this word again, but you know artificial intelligence, machine learning, right? <laughs> There's some cool stuff going on there, but what I'm starting to hear more about is how attackers are using artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve. So that's that's the challenge we all face, right? I mean, I've been around for 20 years watching this stuff. It's a rap, it's 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 a hamster wheel. Attackers, defenders, the never ending. And that's why it's it is a great space for investing and to be an investment banker because I you know, we'll go through cycles of overcapacity, undercapacity, but it it just feels like a problem that will never be 100% completely so there's a lot more cybersecurity investing right now. Do you kind of think we're in a bubble with it? Or do you think it's just going to grow and grow? Yeah, so the, it's an interesting question because a couple of years ago, it just seemed like the space was way over invested in. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember two years ago going out to RSA and just, you know, never ceases to amaze me, but you walk around and say, I can't believe how many vendors oh, are, yeah. are there, right? right. And, and, then, and then everybody's saying, okay, you know, cyber investing did come down a bit. Day of reckoning is coming. And then I went out last year and I'm like, I can't believe how many <laughs> vendors, yeah, right? How more, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. It feels like things have moderated. I think investors are more, you know, cautious with respect to, to valuations that will, will be paid. Um, but, you know, I don't feel like we're in some big bubble that things are out of control and, you know, massive companies are going to go go out of business. I lived through the internet bus. That was awful. But so I don't think it's a repeat there. But but there you know there's always room for for rationalization, and not every security technology or space is is going to be huge standalone, right? It's you know oftentimes pieces of something else. I also still think that the market sees all of the breaches that are happening and all of the stories, mm-hmm. like the Supermicro one, like we were talking about, whether or not they are accurate or not, it's clear that there is still some sort of need there and that companies are still trying to find technology to not necessarily find the silver bullet, but because that's never going to be found, but actually find the, the, the piece of technology that can be used across, I think, both the enterprise and the small and medium business space. So I, I think that I don't know, I don't think that we're in a bubble, but I think that there is going to still be an adjustment because we report on them all the time and the valuations that I see sometimes, I'm like, that is no indication that this product is necessarily going to work at some sort of level. So, right. you, I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time with your background being a, a Wall Street analyst where you probably are telling your customers too, where it's like, hey, don't always trust that just because there's some marketing and some money behind it that this is actually gonna be the solution that you want for your organization. Yeah, no, totally true. I mean, I can tell you that at my previous gig, I mean, we went through a period of three quarters where the product didn't really function as expected, but the marketing 
never led you to believe that, and we did a good job <laughs> of, of shielding that. So yeah, you really got to dig down, dig in. Um, you know, one of the interesting trends I think or themes that's going on too is I think you know architectural shifts. You know, the shift to cloud. Right. So look, I mean, Palo Alto Networks, great company, right? I mean, blew through you know billion dollar, hasn't really slowed down in growth yet. But you know, CEO change, the you know, uh, executive from Google, they're they're starting to do a lot more M and A. We look at that a lot too, because on, on the network security side, you know, it's still largely on prem today. So, you know, the ninety percent of firewalls deployed are still traditional appliances that are sitting at corporate, you know, perimeters and, and data centers. But there's no doubt there is more shift to, to the cloud wanting to deploy. And, and that's not only deploying a, a network security solution, whether it's a firewall or threat intelligence gateway to protect a workload on Amazon, but there's, there's going to be more of this push to consume network security as a service. So we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about how, how, that, how we get to that point. How has that shift to cloud sort of changed the security awareness in each of the sectors that you deal with? Like, has it changed the way people think about things in the financial sector, based on the healthcare sector, based on the government sector, or what are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, so I think each is kind of unique. Um, what's, what's funny is, you know, financial, uh, you know, started, I remember when I first started, right? I mean, just, we were all locked down. Right, and the internet was just starting. I'd learned what email was. Right, we would, we would build financial models for companies and fax them to the CFOs to get to get reviewed. Okay. Right, but um, but but you know, so financial has tended to be conservative as far as use of technology, but you can only do that so long. But financial is always a leader, you know, because of the regulatory environment. They do a lot right. with sensitive data, so I, I think they're ahead of the game. Health healthcare is always tough. Right, you, you you would think right. They do have uh, stringent regulations with HIPAA, but when I covered health IT, what was always interesting to watch was an investment in technology was always uh, competed against or competing against uh, building a new building, a new wing of a hospital, or getting a new piece of medical equipment. So technology kind of took a took a back seat there, and then government I think has been fairly progressive. You know, now they certainly have strict security requirements, which is why, you know, companies like AWS have special clouds, right. you know, for, mm-hmm. for classified government and for, for civilians. So I think we're going there. I, I, you know, I think, again, as far as consuming security as a service, it's, it's evolutionary. Uh, email is common today. Companies like Proofpoint have done really well. Um, URL, uh, web filtering. You know whether that's uh, Zscaler or a Cisco umbrella, where your web request is going to the cloud. Um, it'll be interesting to see how firewalls, intrusion prevention systems, and threat intelligence gateways like ours, where that goes over over the next five years, as far as the how how that is delivered. So we like to end this on a random question, Uh-oh. and I guess the last time we saw you was in Vegas. So, who throws the best um, cybersecurity party? Who throws the best cybersecurity party? Yeah. So, Black Hat, I'll be honest, I didn't go to lots of parties, but I've heard very good things about Silence, and they did something, some ice place uh, out, yeah. out there, but I, I didn't go to that. How about an RSA? RSA, I, I think the best I've ever been to, honestly, was Palo Alto Networks. 
And and to be honest, I think the best party I've been to was Palo Alto's user conference where they brought out um, one-hit wonder 80s bands or representatives <laughs> of the bands to play. So I'm talking like John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band, uh, Berlin on the dark side. Uh, okay. Yep. The uh, lead singer of Berlin, little Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. <laughs> yep. Romantics, Talking in Your Sleep. And then um, Tommy Two-Tone. Jenny, got your number? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was, so, it was so uncrowded that when he came out and said, you know, I'm going to sing a song I'm sure all of you know. I said, is it 555-1212? And he laughed and said, that's funny. <laughs> that's how old I am. The old, the old number to dial information. There we go. Right? There we go. Todd, uh, really appreciate you joining us. No, thanks. Fun time. Thanks again to Todd. Good person to find and talk to if you want to talk cyber trends or where the best party is come conference time. That's all from us. Back again next week with a really interesting interview we're both excited about. Until then, stay curious. And go vote. <laughs>